Welcome to the second episode of VSML 2010 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Harmstone, and joining me as always is the Canadian whose habit of exploring cemeteries now makes a lot of sense if he's looking for tubes, Logan Saunders. Good evening. Good evening. It's another another Vidum week, and another um, another very fun episode. Next week's the one I'm looking forward to. We've already had a little discussion about next week. Yeah, I think next the episode three is one of the most iconic overall in Vidum, not just for Vidum Japan, but for Vidum in general. Yeah, and also there's an element of next week that I had completely forgotten about till I looked at Bindle's challenge guide for next week's episode and went, they do that next week? I don't remember that at all. So this is fun. But yeah, a truly gutting loss in this week's episode of, uh, of my Booba-style favourite of Tim. Yeah, poor Sean William Scott. He was gone too soon, and he'll end up getting tagged in these episodes, so I'm sure I'll get a message off him. Yeah, the, it's funny, in the first episode they set up this big storyline between him and and Sana having this relationship, and then in episode two it doesn't really amount to anything. No, it's just she screws him over, he knows she screwed him over, and then he goes home. Yeah. So previously, ten new Dutch celebrities flew to the land of Samurai and Shogun, Japan. PCN asked them to find a friend before four of them stood on the pillars of a bridge. A miscommunication sold them only in a thousand euros while Eric and Kim messed around on a walk along a canal, but the rest of the group saw through it. At the execution, Purple Loretta was the first to see Red and have to do the two-day journey in reverse. And they are still in Nagasaki. PTN tells us that they're fanatic, cheerful and social, but perhaps a little too nice for each other. You reach the finale when you're brutal, selfish and smart. Loretta was the first to fall after a day and return to the Netherlands. Tim opens the episode by saying that he could have screamed that he got through an execution. Barbara says when you leave first, it's like you didn't even participate at all. And Fritz says that once everyone is focused on their own theories, the season will get much more brutal. That's quite the foreshadowing there. <laughs> oh yeah. And also, there really isn't much downtime footage in this season. I can't remember whether this is just unique to Japan, but... It's incredibly efficient. We're used to Vidum episodes now being maybe an hour and five, an hour and ten. This is a solid 50 minutes without adverts, and it's very efficient. And I think episode three is 49 minutes of airtime. Yeah, I was actually, that was that was in my notes too, where I was going to ask him, thinking, I could have sworn that Vidum episodes are right around an hour for the past few years. I forgot that it was really condensed ten years ago. Yeah, I don't know whether the time slot changed a little bit or something, but it feels a lot more kind of straight to the point in this season, in the first two episodes at least. Well, furthermore to add to that is that the start of the second episode, it's only day two, so I don't think contestants really get much downtime. And not meaning to skip ahead, but in episode three, we started on day three as well. So it's very interesting that now you mentioned that because they probably don't have much downtime shown in the episodes because likely there wasn't much downtime during filming. If you're doing one episode per day or per 24 hours, when when do they rest? Well, also, the other element of this is probably that they have to take the two-day flight there, so that then really condenses the amount of filming time that they actually have. Yeah, I was thinking unusually long flights for Vidum, they tend to choose locations that are quite a bit closer, especially in recent years. And also the fact that Japan is probably the most expensive country they've filmed in in quite a while. 
In fact, I can't think of a country they've filmed in since the Japan season that would be more expensive. If you consider that the next season they did El Salvador and Nicaragua, two countries that I suspect are nowhere near as expensive as Japan. Nope. <laughs> Have you been to either of those? No, but it would blend in with... Those Central American countries are largely comparative in terms of expense, and El Salvador and Nicaragua would be even low, would be much lower than Costa Rica and Panama. Costa Rica and Panama aren't too expensive for visiting, probably close to Cuba. Yeah, so I'm just having a quick look at Marika's um, episode lens out of interest on this. And by season 14, the premiere was an hour, which is, I mean, roughly standard now, I think. But yeah, most of these episodes are a solid fifty minutes. Yeah, that's all of them are. All of them are within a minute of of fifty minutes. Actually, it's very efficient. Then you contrast it to the Belgian Mole, where it's about ninety minutes per episode now, and it used to be about seventy. Yeah, but that's a hundred percent quality. I don't want them to shorten those episodes. I really enjoy them. On the subject of the length changing, um, up until season fifteen, it was on Thursdays at half eight in the evening. And then from season 16, it moved to, uh, to Saturdays. So that may have something to do with it as well. Yeah, boost the amount of time. Probably not much other competition, so they can have longer running time for episodes. I don't hate longer episodes. It just is very noticeable at the start of this episode where it's super efficient. You go straight from Peter Yan to Tim going, oh, I could have cried that I got through an execution, and then you immediately have Peter Yan going to the trap. There's no breath, basically, between them. Well, even in the premiere, we were talking about how e- each of the 10 players were introduced really quickly, rapid fire. And then the first task is so convoluted that you don't even really understand what the task is. It's not even fully explained until close to the end of the challenge. The other fun thing is this is the last season without any episode titles as well. From season 11 onwards, they give us episode titles. It's always I'm always fascinated by certain format changes that become permanent or that don't become permanent until 10, 11, 12, or 13 years later down the road. Yeah, it's very interesting, because this this certainly seems to be kind of the tipping point between, I don't want to say old Vidim and new Vidim, but the sort of things that are introduced that then become the Vidim that we we know more. For example, the fact that Art is on the next season, and then he takes over hosting from Peter Yan. Even during this episode, they said, by the way... You're, you guys are going to be really surprised to find this out, but Yokers have returned for just the second time. And I just thought Yokers had been around a lot longer. Weirdly, there was actually there was a discussion on the on the Bothers Bar Discord in the past few days of us recording this in uh, in April about Yokers being introduced. And they've been a thing in, in Belgium for absolutely forever. And by the sound of things, Vidim held out a lot longer than Belgium did. Belgium's had them since the first season. It was just a core part of the game. Meanwhile, in Vidim, it's viewed as, say, another advantage that gets thrown in, as if it's the later years of Survivor. Yeah, in all, in the old version of Belgium, they actually used them, so you had to nominate what question you wanted to skip and use the Passfragen for. Oh, it was a lot more strategic. Rather than you just automatically swapping a wrong answer for a right one, you had to nominate which question you thought you'd got wrong and play it on that one. So you could potentially waste your pass fragon by vetoing the wrong question. Yeah, and I don't hate that, I'll be honest. Yeah, you have to be rewarded when you use it rather than just using it blindly. Yeah, I prefer that way better. 
I quite like that, although I think if you have a situation where someone wins, for example, the potential of up to 20 like uh, Joker did in uh, Belgium, Mexico, it could be a very interesting situation, especially if you force them to use them on one test. Well, in that case, they would just use it on every question if they had all 20. Yeah, but if you only had, if you say had 10, you'd then actually have to gamble and you could, in theory, waste all 10. Yeah, that would that would be something. You'd look like a complete idiot if you were executed, but really it's just because you just gambled on the wrong questions. So Peter Yan does meet them on a tram. He says that they will split into three teams and get a map with two tubes marked on it for each of them, and they have until 3.30pm to find the tubes and return to the tram with them unopened before meeting him at a particular location to earn the money. Nobody is allowed to be late. Aryan immediately says that he wants to be with Kim and Eric, Barbara was in a team with Fritz and Hint, leaving Tim, Manuel, and Sana to be the final group. And they get one hour and an envelope containing the locations in Japanese, a phone, and a tram ticket. How would you play this challenge, do you think? Well, if I was a contestant, I would want to make sure I'm the one holding the walkie-talkie. <laughs> Since it seems like 90% of Vidim sabotages and challenges involving walkie-talkies happen when the mole has a, has a hold of one. So that'd be the first thing I'd do. And if I was the mole, same thing, handle the walkie-talkie. And of course, turn a blind eye if I see a tube. That would, that would be a good way. Or turn a blind eye to a laptop. Just throw, throw out nonsense suggestions and guesses for the envelopes where you try to steer everybody away from the whole uh, nuclear, the nuclear history of Nagasaki. Full disclosure, Logan did message me earlier saying the most sabotages in this season would get called out immediately. So I do think that it's probably going to get to the point where we just go, yeah, this is exactly what the mole did long before the section about what the mole actually did at the end of the episode. I think we're going to end up slipping up sooner rather than later on that. Yeah, because it's it's tough to discuss this challenge when we have that knowledge in mind. Um, Especially when we just came off a season where I kept pointing out that everyone was doing sabotage is very similar to this challenge and that's how i how i exposed him as the mole yeah it is very very funny i have to admit i just know that one or both of us is going to go oh yeah this is exactly what they did and go oh shit we shouldn't have done that (laughs) spoiler alert for 2010 spoiler alert for a season that is 12 years old now it's going into high school i don't hate the tactic that the first team have of targeting students as they're the most likely to speak English. But I think I probably would go one further and try and find hotels. Yes. Actually, um, I can't remember. Jan and I were just having this conversation a day or so ago where if you need any sort of directions or need anything printed or any sort of help, hotels will help tourists very quickly and with little hesitation. Especially in a city like Nagasaki, where everyone is super polite and there aren't too many tourists who are going through there compared to other Japanese cities. That's what I would do. Hotels would absolutely be my first port of call in a challenge like this. I mean, we've seen it so much on Amazing Race when taxi drivers have no idea where to take a team. They just drop them off the hotel and let the hotel help them out. So yeah, Kim, Aryan and Eric do target the students. Fritz says that the mole's tactic will be to delay, which is exactly what Barbara was doing with her little legs not moving fast enough. Sana spots one of their sentences, Hollander Slope, on a sign, even though it's in Japanese, which is a very good spot from her, I have to point out. 
Yeah, that's a good that's a good observation for Dorothy Ann. Especially as Japanese isn't the most easy language to spot those sort of things in. There's a lot of subtle differences that could have uh, that could have changed things there. Yeah, it's not the it's not the easiest language to learn. <laughs> Alien Kim and Eric find a man who speaks a bit of English who volunteers to help them find their first tube. Barbara Hint and Fritz's first tube is hiding in a cemetery, like Logan has been there before them. Sana, Tim and Manuel also find their first one, as do the first team. And they all realise that the places have some connection with the Netherlands. Barbara spots their second tube near the Middleburg sign on a mountain. Sana, Manuel and Tim say that they would rather be on time with one tube than late with two. And Kim, Eric and Arjen almost make the same decision, but let the tram go. Which infuriates uh, Manuel. Yeah. It's very interesting because, as we said, this is a different era of Vidim, so the challenges are a bit more opaque. And it's obviously a complaint that we have a lot of the time with modern-day Vidim, but I would have been under the impression on this that they probably wouldn't have earned all the money if they didn't come back with all the tubes. If they'd said beforehand, oh yeah, the tubes are only hints as to where you need to go, and made it blatantly clear, then I think it would be more understandable. Yeah, because they try really hard to collect the tubes, more than more than most people would. Yeah. And Eric, Eric hugged a Japanese girl after she helped him, and I don't think she was too keen on being hugged. <laughs> that would not be happening today. <laughs> he definitely did not get consent to hug her. <laughs> so Manuel opens their tube on the tram to find the word Washington, as Ian is on the phone, him and Kim walk past their second tube, hidden on a sign. Eric spots it eventually, and they get the words Rodan and Florence. Team 3 don't spot the laptop on the seat next to Tim. They need to type all the answers into the computer on an instant message chat to, uh, to Peter Yan to tell them if they're right or wrong. Were they using AIM? This dates the challenge ever so slightly, I think. The fact that they have a forcible instant message component of the challenge. I really want to know what app they used for that. It looked like a custom one of some description. They must have built a PEN bot for it, because the whole purpose of it was they guess where they're going to go and he tells them right or wrong. But it did look like there was some sort of custom chat window that they had built for it. So it may have been the Vidum version of Microsoft's Tay, for all we know. But yeah, I wouldn't have been surprised if it was something like... What would it have been in 2010, actually? Would 2010 have been too late for MSN? No, I think MSN was still around in 2010. Not for much longer, because... Well, let me think. AOL Instant Messenger ended right after Survivor Game Changers, because I was invited to play in a mini on AIM, because I used to play a lot of Survivor games on AOL Instant Messenger, and I was invited to the final ORG mini or ORG game to ever be played on AOL Instant Messenger, and we played it like less than two hours before it was going to shut down permanently. So that, and yeah, that was, I think, August, August of the whatever year Game Changers aired. That was season 34, 42 is airing. So yeah, AIM ended in 2017. Yeah, August of 2017, they shut down AIM. And a bunch of people who were in that mini were like, yeah, we haven't really been on AIM for. <laughs> for a few years. No wonder it's shutting down. (laughs) So MSN stopped... Well, MSN got taken over by Skype in about 2011-2012, apparently. 
So they could have been they could have easily been on MSN still. Yeah. It may very well have been an AIM or an ICQ or something similar to that. Is ICQ still around? I remember Googling that it went on way longer than I thought, because a lot of people where I live in Canada, we stopped using ICQ in ninety nine or two thousand, a really long time ago. ICQ is, according to Wikipedia, still a thing. I think it was. Uh, there's a few countries where it's still popular. Because I look up, I look up that page every few years or so, and I find out, oh, it's still a thing. Yeah. So it is it's very much still a thing. Apparently, uh, it had a spike in popularity a couple of years ago because of Hong Kong. Oh, during the protests. Yeah, it's still got 11 million monthly users. Apparently, 11 million. I don't know a single person who uses ICQ, but I just remember. I guess it just didn't really catch on in Canada too much, but I remember I remember even going into a video store, a video rental store, so this would be close to 20 years ago easily. I remember going in there, and there were two uh, two employees were chatting at the counter, and then the one woman said, oh, what's your ICQ? And then I just remember just started laughing to myself because I was thinking, who uses ICQ anymore? Even back then, it was viewed as ancient. And that this would have been probably 2003, maybe 2004. As of February this year, it had 11 million monthly users, apparently. Well, at least it's trending better than Netflix right now. That joke will age beautifully in the next two months. (laughs) So Eric works out that they're trying to look for something to do with the atom bomb. And with the words orange and Lenin, they make the link to Peace Park. PTN explains to us that the Netherlands gave a statue to the people of Nagasaki to commemorate the atom bomb falling there, and that's where PTN is waiting for them. Everyone refuses to run, but Manuel is by far the slowest, and Eric falls behind to help him, and they find PTN with 80 seconds left, and in another PTN Hagen's dick move, he mocks them for not seeing the laptop on the tram, but they win 2,500 euros for the pot regardless. Even if, uh, it's very rare to see a host do this, but he just outright says Santa is the mole. Sam and the mole didn't even see the laptop on the tram. You don't you don't see a host accuse a contestant of being the mole in front of everybody else. Not like it's uh, in contrast to say, oh, are you the mole? Are you the mole? Are you the mole? I've never seen a host just drop it so casually and say, oh, Sam is the mole, because she didn't even see the laptop on the tram. I don't know whether Peter Yan knows who the mole is. That's what I was thinking, too, at the end of the challenge, because that's if the host does know who the mole is... They really shouldn't be saying something like that. It's obviously a personal choice for all the hosts to know. Art famously did know every time. Uh, Rick obviously knows because most of the time they're his friends. But, for example, in the UK, Glenn never knew. Glenn only knew because he had to do one of the the hidden clues in the actual episode in the second series. The first series he never knew, deliberately, because he never wanted to, because he didn't want to spoil it for anyone. And he wanted to try and guess himself. I think Bowler, he only knew once, didn't he? Grant Bowler in Australia? I think so. I don't think Anderson ever knew. I think Anderson made a point of never finding out. Yeah, he didn't even know he was doing some of the hidden clues on his own. Do you prefer a host to not know? Yeah, because then they can be more loose and play along with the with the contestants. As long as they just conceal what the details of the challenges, I think it's a, it's a lot less stressful for the host and maybe they... I mean, look at Peter Yan. He's free to make some of these remarks if it's true that he doesn't know who the mole is. I don't think he's as sarcastic if he's in on it. I mean, compared to Art and Rick, where they're a bit more selective of the jabs they make at the contestants. I think 
obviously, if you're in a Jill situation, you've got to know because you're one of the producers yourself. But I think generally, I probably would prefer a host not to know, just just so they can be a bit more chill and enjoy themselves a bit more. Yeah, with DaCosta, it's a bit... He's always going to be the exception to the rule because that's he's the whole showrunner. He's doing... He is very, very involved with what's going on and a very, very bright guy. Yeah, and also, he's never going to let anything slip despite my repeated attempts. Yeah, he's always on. Yeah, I've lost count of the amount of times that I have tried to get him to slip up on literally anything, and he never does. Look at the cuckoo clock running joke we had for Germany Jens this season. He had a joke planted a year beforehand. DaCosta really, really commits to to each season. The irony is, of course, that we are recording this between... In real time, we're recording this in April before we've even been to the... Um, finale. So they very well could have played an even bigger joke than that and we don't know about it at the time of recording. Yeah, there's still two weeks left. (laughs) I'm fully expecting, especially given that the new mole got told um, that something big's happening on May 8th, I'm fully expecting there to be an even bigger prank played. And I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be amazing. So they check into their next hotel. Arjen, Tim and Manuel are in room 201. Eric and Fritz are in number 210. And it's joked that they can talk about their prostate problems. Yeah. <laughs> oh, old people jokes. I should note I've been to the Peace Park where that challenge ended. I was going to ask because I, uh, I know you've been to Nagasaki. You were there for a fair while, weren't you? No, I was only there for like a day. I was near Nagasaki for a few days because there's a house ten bush. That's the Dutch theme park that they have in the middle of nowhere. But uh, in terms of the actual city of Nagasaki, I was only there for the day because I did the I did the atomic bomb museum, and then yeah, then I saw all the statues at the peace park there, which is kind of cool. There's lots of statues around there, and then I recognized the. I didn't go on the Ferris wheel, but I know roughly where it is because it's right close to the train station. But yeah, I only had, barely had a day in Nagasaki, if I recall correctly. The train journey to Nagasaki is quite cool. It's very, it's very scenic. There's a lot of coastline in Japan, as I discovered. <laughs> well, I went to Japan in Epcot a few weeks ago, so stuck on that. <laughs> they wake up on day three, wondering what sort of day they're going to have. Sana wants to wear her light blue suits, but she says, given the rain, it might get ruined. I mean, it's a pretty baller move to start wearing suits on day three of uh, Vista Mall. You don't even know what's to come, and you're already wearing suits after three days. Yeah, there's going to be some challenges coming up. I can think of off the top of my head where a suit would not be ideal clothing. <laughs> Although she would have fit in very nicely with the uh, with the guards in the next challenge, actually. Yeah, all I had to do was give her a gun. So they get blindfolded on the bus with no idea where they're going. Production, with a blatant disregard for health and safety, makes them walk up and downstairs blindfolded. PTN comes on a projector and tells them to take their blindfolds off, and they have to assume that they're still in Japan, but it looks like they're in a Dutch village. He warns them to be careful, they're in a bad dream. At most, two people can go outside at a time, and they have one hour to find the cash hidden in the village, and they need to watch out for the men in black. Galaxy Defenders. They're the first, last, and only Japanese line of defense. And I think I did the Men in Black ride twice when I was in Florida, although I can't remember. All I remember is uh, is Will Smith coming on the screen and, and flashing something, I don't know. 
Yeah, you just, you just, when you get on the ride, it's like, instead of stamping your ticket, they put the ink on their hand and then slap the ink on your face. That's your ticket to ride. <laughs> so they're in Holland Village, a Dutch village theme park for a very unique laser game. Ayan and Sana are the first pair formed. She wanted to go with Ayan as she doesn't trust him. There are buttons hidden around the park, which they must press, that reveal parts of the map in the control room, which reveal where the money is actually hidden. They also get four security camera feeds where they can see the men in black. And I do also have to point out that the setup for this challenge is gloriously low definition. I have a high quality version of these episodes thanks to the Belgian broadcaster that I'm using for the banners. But the shitty projector and the shitty camera feeds make this challenge ten times harder. It's tough for contestants to really determine really what they're looking at. Yeah. I think it was there was a whole controversy around do we even bother looking for the merry-go-round because we don't really know where that is in relation to everything else when we're out on the course. No, and also a point from a little bit later in this challenge, this is not a colorblind friendly challenge. The money symbol is in red on a green background, which is about the worst combination you can have for anyone who's colorblind. I am slightly colorblind and I struggled to see where it was. I don't know if anyone in this cast is colorblind, but they wouldn't have been able to see it if they were. If Fritz is left to the end and he's colorblind, he'd be screwed. Yeah, why do we make the colorblind person go solo? <laughs> it's something they are far more careful about now than they were in this episode. But if Fritz had been colorblind, he would have been screwed on that. So I think, I can't remember when this started, but the Dutch village here, that's not the one I went to when I was in Japan. Okay. I can't remember if we took, if there was a rumor going around that I'd been to this specific spot, but this this wasn't the one. But I did look up reviews for it because I was very curious where it was where it was in Nagasaki, and the Dutch village doesn't have very good reviews on Google. No, it's three out of five. Three out of five, and there are a lot of people saying this area is really small, and you can just go around casually, take pictures, and be in and out of there within half an hour. So. It kind of explains how this challenge plays out on TV, because when I'm watching it, multiple pairs are going down that same flight of stairs, and that's where the one guard was that keeps shooting at them. And I notice when people are trying to run away from the guards, when one gets in the same frame, there's really nowhere to hide. Like If the guard, if you're in the same area as the guard, you're, you're going to get shot. About nine, I think only one person truly escapes to where the challenge essentially resets for them. For the rest, I'm thinking, this is just wide open space. There's no real obstructions other than the few buildings out on the course, and there's only that one flight of stairs or two. There's no other source of elevation, really. Well, other than the stairs that Fritz takes to that he was two meters away from finishing off the challenge. But, yeah, it seems like a really small area. Ordinarily, with this sort of a laser game, they would have had some sort of safe zone where the contestants weren't going to be harassed by the guards. And you'd probably assume, if the money wasn't hidden right next to their start point, that that would have been that square. As soon as you get past the button near the start point, then all bets are off. But you would assume that normally they would tell the uh, the guards not to go anywhere near that, that square to give them a fair chance. However, it is a brilliant dick move to hide the money right next to where they start. Yeah, like Fritz didn't have to run that far to collect the briefcase, right? No, it wasn't even a briefcase. It was an envelope inside a wooden box, I think. Oh. 
it was a wooden box on the top of the stairs that contained the envelope, which contained 3,000 euros. And then he gets shot like two meters away from the finish. Yeah. So Ayan and Sana walk past an open door, but then walk back and find the second button. They then see one of the men in black and hide in a bush. They run into a church while being shot at and reveal a completely pointless third bit of the map. Ayan hits the button again almost immediately after Sana does, removing the map piece, which is something you don't spot until later on in the episode. They do a callback to this, but it's not blatantly clear in the first bit of the episode that that happens. I wonder if that was production or editor's attempt to create suspicion for the more hardcore audience around uh, Aryan. Yeah, I think this is the point where Aryan's suspicious edit begins. Because we're obviously going to get into this uh, later on in the season, but Aryan was for a long time in this season the number one suspect in the Netherlands. By far the number one suspect. He's both the most popular player in this season, even before he becomes Dutch John Oliver, and the most suspicious person from this episode. Did you enjoy the Japanese voice modulator? (laughs) I thought we'd never get to this. The Japanese Charlie off of Angels. (laughs) It's part of the charm of this season that they do this goofy shit. Obviously, it's completely unnecessary. Obviously, he wasn't guiding those, those men in black at all. It's just the goofy shit that that makes me love this season even more. There's Manuel terminating with the food poisoner gun. It's not even the fact that they have the guy in shadow quote-unquote controlling these people. It's the fact that they put the voice modulator on him. And the fact that he seems to be chain-smoking as well. <laughs> yeah, he just starts coughing on the intercom. <laughs> I really have to I really have to quit. This is a bad habit. There's just such unnecessary shit for this laser game, and I love it so much. This is the first challenge of the season where Japan is just a really charming season. And I know we've said it before, but if they had the budget, I would love to see what Belgium would do with with a Japan set season. I think it would be absolutely bonkers for, for reasons like this. Well, they'd get a lot more volcano puns in. Yeah, but can you imagine Gilles doing a Japanese game show parody? Or Gilles somehow finding out where they filmed Takeshi's Castle slash Most Extreme Challenge and taking them to the location of making them do skipping stones or something? Yeah, somebody has to go into Tokyo Tower wearing a Godzilla costume, hanging upside down while remembering the order of Belgian cyclists who did well in the Tour de France. They would 100% do a cycling challenge because of Kieran as well. Like, there's so much potential. And I know Jill has, has spoken about wanting to go to Japan as a location, but it's very expensive. I would love to see what they do with it, purely inspired by this slightly bonkers laser game that they do here. So, Ian takes a risk and just runs to the merry-go-round, but is shot as is Sana on the escalator. Madwell and Hint are then sent out. Hint presses the first button again just in case, but it removes one of the pieces of the map. And they stroll into a man in black and stop talking on the walkie-talkie. They then press another button and get shot. Tim being Tim does the logical thing and suggests that they shouldn't be looking for the merry-go-round as they're not looking for an attraction. They're looking for the one spot with money on it. 100% correct. Tim and Kim are then sent out third to restore the missing map piece. Tim attracts the attention of the shooter and him and Kim walk completely past another button. Tim then gets shot and Kim continues on her own. Fritz tells her to come back and get a second person at which point she gets shot. 
and Barbara says that Kim was definitely moling. And Kim admits in confessional she's just trying to make herself look suspicious. Barbara and Eric are then sent out. Barbara immediately gets shot as one of the men is hiding near the control room. Eric pushes the button on the docks, but it turns a map piece off. And then he gets shot. And Fritz is left on his own with absolutely no information. And it's incredibly stormy by this point. He pushes the button in the church and reveals the place with the Euro sign. It's right next to his control room. However, he's basically trapped in the town square by two of the men in black. He doesn't see the guy hiding behind the stairs and is shot two metres away from the 3,000 euros that they could have won. If it wasn't raining so hard when Fritz went out, I think he gets the 3,000 in time because then he would be more free to try and sprint even harder on the stairs. I think so too. And then Hind accuses Fritz of really sabotaging that, probably thinking that Fritz was trying to look to be the hero or pretending to be the hero when really he was the mole and got himself shot no matter what, whether it be one meter, two meters, or three meters away. So Peter Yan confirms they were two meters away from securing the 3,000 euros. And then you think, he, at first, it looks like he's doing a promo for the camera, but then we pan and see the contestants are there while he's filming that part, when they're all under the tent together. And he says, in the abandoned Dutch village, the weather also became Dutch. And then you remember, oh yeah, Netherlands is not known for good weather, or rather Holland. Holland isn't known for good weather. Forgot that Netherlands would also include the ABC Islands. Which is weird, because I don't think such would, but it has rained any time I've been to the Netherlands. At least I can't remember it doing that. Because it was dry when we went to, to Amsterdam in 2016. Yeah, yeah, right around Christmas time. I went to Rotterdam a few months later. One day was super nice. Two of the days were super nice. Did it even rain? I think it was, might have been there for three days and didn't rain, and that would have been in March. So that's quite surprising. Yeah, I don't know whether we've just kind of got lucky between us, but I don't think it's it's been that damp when I've been to the Netherlands before. Or maybe no one in Holland ever goes to Ireland and suffers through 70 hours of rain in a 72-hour period. <laughs> yeah. So Fritz missing the box means that they earned a total of two and a half thousand euros of five thousand for the episode and five and a half thousand of fifteen and a half thousand for the season so far. PCN reminds them that they were told to find a friend who wouldn't betray them, and he wants them to form those friendship pairs now. And they choose some of the locals that they've interacted with during the tram challenge as their partners. Yeah, Eric tries to bring a Japanese schoolgirl over and it does not fly. <laughs> yeah. And his excuse is that he's just stimulated by new people. That is about the line of those jokes I could do. (laughs) So Arjen and Barbara, Sanna and Tim and Eric and Fritz all form pairs very quickly, but Kim, Manuel and Hint form a trio. And after a bit of negotiation, Hint is left over by herself. She always talks about being lonely here, and she made the odd decision of choosing to be in a group of three. The thing is, Hint actually gets an advantage by by being on her own here. It's not, it's not even so much an advantage. It's a completely different challenge for her. It's not, or it's not even really a challenge. It's just take the yokers without any repercussions here. But she's not really a part of anything with this challenge at all. And I think in later seasons of Vidim, or the mole in general, even, even with the American version of the mole 20 years ago or so, if you had a challenge like this where one person is left out, they're always given a key role that controls what happens to all of the other pairings. 
I can't really think of too many instances in any mole season where one person is left over and instead of having an important role or some sort of role where they link with the other pairs, maybe it's not even one where the challenge revolves around them so much or they can just help out the pairs, but I just can't think of really one where one person is left out and they have no impact, influence, or experience anything remotely similar to what everyone else experiences for this challenge. Yeah, it's really strange because obviously it was deliberately built that way. Peter Yan starts the season by saying, one person is definitely going home tomorrow and you're going to have to live with it. And I'm not, I'm not sure why, particularly. I think this should always be the, the gamble of being the solo person, whereas she just gets a free ride here. She could have just hung on for a third Yoko if she really wanted to and been so unapologetic about it. Yeah, it's just like there was no, no benefit, no consequence. Uh, they essentially had a challenge and said, okay, pick one person who will have nothing to do until the execution. All she's going to do is swipe to take a yoker or two away, and that's about one-tenth of the experience that everyone else gets. So it could have been something so small, like predict predict if this person will lie or tell the truth. If, they're, if you're correct, you get a yoker for that pairing. Just, just something where it's, it just feels like she's just being excluded from the experience here. And I don't think that's... It's not... It's not a well-thought-out Vidim challenge. Better yet, if you can't figure out what to do with the leftover person, then just wait to do this challenge until an even number of people are left. I know even if they waited till next round to do it, they're ultimately going to get screwed over, unfortunately, and they'd be in the same situation, but it's just a, it's just a very odd, deliberate choice. Not necessarily, I will say, because as we discussed earlier, there is a uh, an element to next week that I had completely forgotten about. But yeah, we'll get to that next week. But yeah, it, it's just a really odd decision to go, oh yeah, one person's going to have completely no consequences here and not even going to have to do any negotiation. But on that subject, there is a brilliant moment when she does take the two yokers that she takes, because she just grins at Tim. Tim goes for it, and she beats him to it. And she grins at him, and it's very funny. It's a, a split-second thing, and I can't get the screenshot of it to uh, to make it the banner this week. As of the moment, I will keep trying, but it made me laugh when I saw it. Because she just doesn't give a shit. She just grins at him and takes the two yokers out of his hand. Yeah, what's anyone else going to do? She's already solo. She doesn't tell anybody anything. Do you think that they were told they had to use the yokers in this round? I would think so. Why, why would anybody voluntarily to use multiple yokers when there's still nine people left? Because we've discussed this a lot, that if you have more than one yoker, you probably don't play them all together unless you unless you really are feeling unsafe. Everyone used their yokers, though. Yeah. Was it kind of a Mexican standoff situation of, I know everyone else is going to use it, so I'm just going to use mine, and then... Everyone thought that. No, because you're. It's there's still nine people. You would just assume someone else is going to be dumb enough to go all in on the second quiz and go home. I just don't see the benefit of using the ochres on the in the second round. Maybe the first round when it's still complete luck of the draw when you don't have quite enough info to figure out who the mole is yet. But at the end of round two, you have some info 
you still have enough people who are going to be silly enough to go all in on one person and go home because of it. Granted, that doesn't happen this execution, as we'll get to in a minute. But overall strategy dictates you gotta. I would hang on to that yoker for at least one more round, especially when it's early enough on with the history of yokers, where this is only the second season they use it that. There's not going to be any major twist involving your yokers being stolen from you and being in somebody else's possession. So they're split up and told whatever they pick up is what their partner will get. Only Hint is playing for herself, and they can only grab one item. And PTN's box is full of yokers that he just wants to give away to lovely people. Hint grabs two yokers, Tim grabs one, Eric grabs two, and Kim grabs one. Aryan gets absolutely nothing for Barbara, because there are only four offers in each round. Fritz then gets one, Santa gets two, Barbara gets three, and Manuel tries to snatch three, but loses out to Quick Fingers, Petey, and Hargens. The friends are then brought face to face and able to negotiate what they got with each other. Fritz and Erica first, they both tell the truth about what they got, and Fritz offers to let him have the second Joker, but if he does, the trust will be over. Eric gives him the second one, as Fritz's Bontia is more important. Manuel tells Kim that he got three for her. She says she didn't get any for him. P.T. Ann then makes him tell the truth. Kim says you can't trust anyone. In real life you make friends, but not in V's to Mall. Aryan admits that he failed to get Barbara anything. And she says she got three and offers to divide them, but gives him the choice of their distribution. He takes two of them and says he will pay her back later. Tim tells Santa that he got one, and Santa claims she also got one. And they swap yokers, and she says she thinks he knew that she lied. With the negotiations, it is now time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows least goes home, except for the mole who can never go home. Fritz, Aryan, Senna, and Hint all have two yokers each, and Eric, Kim, Barbara, and Tim all have one. Manuel has absolutely nothing. Barbara sits down to her test and puts her yoker down when Aryan walks in and gives her another. He also plays his yoker on his test. Sanna says she didn't want to distract him while he did his test. We don't see him play a yoker. She plays two while he plays one when Sanna's done her test. Manuel obviously has no yokers to play, but Kim reveals her yoker when she sits down. Eric says Aryan is super clever, and there were a few moments where it could have been him. He tried to make Kim suspect him, and that could be a mole action. He plays a yoker, and Fritz plays both of his. And Hin sits there all alone and plays her two yokers. And we basically get no suspicions as a result of this twist. Yeah, it's not really one of the moments that ever stuck out in my mind for Vidim, let alone Vidim Japan. I completely forgot about this twist, and then... After seeing how it all played out, I'm thinking, okay, so no real major moments are produced here. It's what you would expect, nothing... I mean, there's a bit of amusement between, like, Tim and Sonic loosely flirting here, with Sonic completely outplaying Tim, but everyone else did what they were supposed to do. Yeah, the the thing about this episode is the... Laser game is very, very memorable. Everyone remembers the laser game. Nobody remembers the negotiation game that comes after it. No, because it was just too low of stakes, and yeah, it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't a wasn't a needle mover, as we like to say. No, and this is also the second episode in a row where no money has been won in the final challenge or even been offered in the final challenge. They've only done two cash challenges in both of the first two episodes. I think it would have been far more interesting if they'd said whatever you pick up, your partner wins for the game, but also there was money in that box. I think if you look at the future sort of iterations of this sort of challenge, they introduce money into it to make it a bit more of a gamble. 
Yeah, and then you figure out who's going to play for the pot, who's going to be so selfish that they're going to hang on to those yokers and screw everyone else over, or screw their partner over. That would have been far more interesting. Like, oh, if you lie about the number of yokers you have, you stop 500 euros from going into the pot. There could have been so much more done with a challenge like this. Yeah, because what's the mole's motivation here? The mole doesn't give a shit about yokers. At all. I think that's what one of the contestants actually said in the confessional is the mole doesn't really have a stake in this challenge at all. I can't remember who said it. No. The mole's one goal is to minimize the amount of money in the pot. So if there's no money in a challenge, the mole doesn't do anything. And I don't think we should ever have a challenge where it doesn't necessarily further the mole being found. Or further the contestant's quest in in finding the mole, for want of a better term. Yeah, this was just one of those unusually really sloppy twist challenges put together. Yeah, I love the laser game in this episode, obviously, because I've talked about it for years. I I don't love the Yoka negotiation game. And I think Friend of the Podcast Bindles agrees with that assessment, to be honest. However, one twist that is quite interesting is that the pairs have to take the quiz in front of each other and reveal the Yokers that they're playing. Yeah. We, we don't even know if they're if they were told before this whole twist happened that they would be taking the quiz in front of each other. I don't think they were. I think given the look of surprise that was on some people's faces in this, I don't think they were told at all. Yeah, because there's a little bit of awkwardness, but no one really outright comments or gets into a fight over it. It's just more like it's just more nervous giggling or awkward silence. Yeah, Barbara looks very shocked when Aryan sits down, for example. So I don't think they were warned. And of course, Hen doesn't even take the quiz in front of anybody. She just completes it by herself. She doesn't get to taunt anybody by playing two yokers. The PCN sits them all down at the docks for the execution. Once the weather has brightened up a bit, Eric and I can get green screens before Tim sees the red screen and is utterly gutted. Yep. It's not like the first execution where everyone just laughed at Loretta going home. Here, people are genuinely saddened that Sean William Scott is eliminated and potentially cock-blocked by Peter Yen. Yeah, when we did the first execution of Belkia, South Africa, we both sort of remembered that Jessica was both a person and really, really sad that she went home. Tim has a very comparable reaction. He is genuinely upset that he lost. Yeah, because this is only about halfway through the third day of the game, so it still seems like you're being executed way too early. Yeah, in a normal, more recent season, you wouldn't even see a first execution until day three. I don't think Belhia Canary Islands did an execution until day three. And then they didn't do their next one until day 16, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, next proper one. And then we find out that, well, Tim was the treasurer, so he gives the money to Barb. So Barb, I guess, is the temporary interim treasurer or penny macer. And then he talks to Peter Yan, and very surprisingly, we don't hear too many second boots say this, but he said, I spread out my answers across a lot of people on the quiz. I took, I did take a bit of time, and he doesn't really know what was wrong. All he can really think is that, the people he must have split amongst weren't, none of them were the mole. Yeah. I have to say, and I don't say this very often, when they were casting for Renaissance, I'm quite surprised we didn't see Tim come back. He was very young at the time anyway. He's incredibly fanatical. I think he still very much enjoys the show. 
and they didn't cast anyone from Japan, which is a surprise. Because it's a beloved season, not just with us, but with with a lot of the fandom. I'm slightly surprised that they didn't they didn't bring Tim back. It's really tough to not make a Euro on joke right now. <laughs> You're rowing a Ron. Yeah, I'm not even deliberately setting you up for um for a, a Euro and joke here. But if you think about the male cast in, in that season, you have Patrick from Mexico, who was incredibly popular. You have Tico, who's an arsehole. You have Horace from El Salvador, Nicaragua, who the only reason people really remembered him in a Vidim term is because he, he was the one who captioned, trust nobody. You have Ron, who was a shoe-in, because obviously he got screwed. And then you have Euroan, who nobody remembers at the best of times. I think you could easily swap out probably a Horace for someone like Tim, as much as I do like Horace. Yeah, it's a bit surprising given he was clearly very well liked by the cast and then the fans and how into it he was and that he did the proper strategy because I can't think of too many people who go home this early and spread out their answers on the quiz. I think it would be very interesting to find out whether Tim got a call about Renaissance. I don't know how we would do that, but I think it'd be very interesting to, to even find out if Tim was in consideration for Renaissance and whether he would come back if they rang him. I can't imagine he wouldn't. But the, the male cast of Renaissance especially skews very old compared to compared to most male casts. Yeah, I mean, Vidum casts generally do, but especially that male cast. I don't think there's a guy in that male cast who's under 40, which is very old for reality TV casting generally. Tim was mid-20s, I think, when he filmed this season. I thought it was like, yeah, 22, 23, 24. Because him and Sana, I think, were the two youngest. Tim is 41 now. So he'd be 29, 28. He would have been the youngest person on uh, Renaissance. <laughs> uh, well, apart from apart from Nikki, who was mid-20s. <laughs> but yeah, I'd be very surprised if Tim didn't get a call. I can't remember, does Tim get screwed over at all because of the Yokers being played this episode or taking too long on the quiz? I can't remember. It's years since I've seen this season, being honest. Because well, if you're spreading out and still go home, you'd have to think it had to be pretty close on the quiz. Yeah, I make a point when we do these seasons of not skipping too far ahead because I don't want to spoil things for myself and accidentally talk about things too early. But you've got to imagine it would have been pretty close. So yeah, as you said, he does give the money to Barbara, and of course he gets a montage, mainly from Holland Village, like we'd not just seen it in this episode. He was sure that he was on the right person, he spread, he took his time, maybe he focused too much on one person, or didn't pick the right people at all. It's good that they all feel bad that he left. And as a Mole superfan, I bet he was absolutely gutted when he found out what he missed the next episode. Oh, that would have been been the real gutting. Because next episode, and we are going to obviously do the next time brief in a minute, next episode has two very infamous challenges, one far more so than others. I think people like the second one far more than the first one, but I, I like both of these challenges at least, because it's absolutely bonkers what they pull off in the next two challenges. Next time, everyone goes back to school for a driving lesson with a difference, and production call in the big guns for a dinner party, There is a lot of whispering, and two very special guests join the fun of this season. And oh boy, are they fun special guests. 
next episode is the reason why this is a Jubilee season. And neither guest comes back after this, right? Not that I'm aware of. If you don't know what we're referring to when we say those sort of things, then watch the next episode immediately. Because it's a it's a jaw-dropping surprise what they pull off. Have you got anything else you want to say about the episode? Nope. I think we're ready to get to the mole section. In that case, thank you for listening to our VS2 Mole 2010 recap. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for an old mole in Japan. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at Logos of Gwaki, and I'm MJ Helmstone. Thank you as always to Marika for the subtitles. We'll see you next week. Peace sound just chill till the next of flavoring. So what did the mole do in this episode? Pretty much the mole did what they said they did on camera. <laughs> You sent me that message earlier, like, Kim is really unsubtle in this episode. She would get called out super quickly in a new season. You're right. I'd forgotten how unsubtle she is. Which is funny, because I'm always really high on Kim as a mole over the years, and then I'm watching these first two episodes, and I'm thinking, is it just because I hadn't watched too many more? It was a big break after not really watching too many mole seasons, now that we've had so much Belgian content and Dutch content over the past few years, where... We know who's done well and who hasn't, but I'm just very surprised. I, I viewed Kim as a subtle mole. These first two episodes, she is not only anything but subtle, but she goes on camera saying, for the second episode in a row after a task, she's saying, oh yeah, I sabotaged on purpose. What mole does that? Other than maybe Angie Everhart is the only one I could really think of being that blatant. It speaks to the culture shift, I think, because... From this point onwards, they they try and get the mole to do something big. Whether that is something like the Meet the Mole Challenge, which obviously we're going to see in a few episodes in uh, in this season. One of my favourites, just trailing ahead to that, is one of my favourite Meet the Mole Challenges ever. But you have stuff like Jan walking past people in the Flowchart Challenge. Or in uh, El Salvador, Nicaragua, individually they all get the bus to the f- location of the first challenge. And the mole is hidden on that bus. That sort of stuff. You can't see who the mole is, so if we do end up covering that season, uh, it's not even worth looking out for that. But they do say, oh yeah, by the way, the mole was on the bus with you. It starts a culture shift where the moles start not necessarily doing more blatant things, but doing more gutsy things. Yeah, I wouldn't say Kim is a reckless mole. I would say she's a gutsy mole through two episodes. I think if you didn't know that Kim was the mole watching this episode, I'm not sure whether you would pick up on her her inferences on stuff like, oh yeah, I was sabotaging deliberately to try and get a bit more suspicion, which is the sort of thing that a contestant would say. I don't think you'd ever find a mole who would fully admit that in a more recent season. No. You don't see a mole playing the meta card that hard. No. But it's very appropriate for the 10th anniversary season to have a mole who's playing the meta game. And it's funny watching this back when you know who makes the end game and you see when Kim gets shot in the laser game it's Eric and Fritz who roll their eyes saying oh here we go again Kim clearly is sabotaging this or the tram challenge when I think it's Kim lets the tram go right or is that Barbara 
I think it is Kim who is the driving force on that. Yeah, she says, "Oh, let's get rid. Let's let the tram go," and people are reacting to that. And then this might have been when Eric catches on to Kim. Maybe I'm remembering something from the reunion show. I could be wrong though. But I think when Kim blatantly just walks right by the tube, the same tube over and over again, and then Eric finds it right after she walks by it. I think that might be when he's on to her, and I think he shares that with Fritz. And that's why Eric and Fritz make it so far, because they start really suspecting Kim here. Yeah, I think after our discussion last week about who actually knew it was Kim in the end, I think Eric is the first person to go home knowing it's her. Yeah, and he makes it to Final Four, right? Yeah. I think it's only him, Sanna, and Fritz in the end who know. And Sanna is greatly helped by winning the Final Four exemption, if I remember rightly. Yeah. So Fritz and Eric, I think, are really on to Kim. Really lock on to Kim, episode one. And then after the after the tram challenge is walking by the tube, it becomes okay. And that's a very moly thing to try and do without any sort of explanation for it. And then, of course, on the tram, she doesn't note the laptop. It's not even that she doesn't note the laptop. It's that she deliberately sits in front of the laptop. And that's not something they call attention to at the end of the season, I don't think. If you can see it. She actually sits hiding the laptop from everyone else. Yeah. I'm curious if she cools down after the second episode, and that's why Fritz and Eric are the only two onto her pretty much all season long. Because maybe she realizes, hmm, maybe going by that tube and having Eric catch me red-handed, I'm just asking to be exposed as the mole. And also next week we have the answer to the um, to the thing that Peter Yan said at the start of the season of the mole reveal themselves in episode three because of the dinner party challenge. That's right. I can't wait to see the dinner party again. It's been a few years. I hope it lives up to my memory of it. The other thing that Kim did do is I'm assuming she did mess with the walkie-talkie right before Tim gets shot in the uh, in the Holland Village challenge. Oh yeah, she did. Yeah, that's the other thing I wrote down too. Conveniently, the walkie-talkie stops working right before Tim gets shot. Yeah, that's the other thing I wrote down. Where hmm, uh, if this were happening a decade later, I think ninety percent of the audience would assume, "Yep, Kim is the mole," because <laughs> we still get walkie-talkie sabotages year after year by the mole. How more people don't lock onto that is beyond me. We got anything else you want to say? No. I'm eager to see how Kim's strategy may or may not change heading into episode three, because so far through two episodes, she keeps, well, she has been caught by two people already, so I'm very curious how she stops the bleeding from now on. In that case, see you next week. Peace out.